Good morning. As Stephen said, uh, we, I'm going to be preaching from 2 Corinthians. And um, if you know anything about these letters to the Corinthians, they're written by Paul, and they're written to churches that Paul has a great deal of affection for. Um, Paul writes to the Corinthians as a father would write to a son, to, to his children. Um, and so you see this affection come out, uh, and you see Paul playing the part sometimes of a coach, uh, exhorting them and admonishing them, sometimes uh, rebuking them, uh, sometimes encouraging them, but all the while uh, speaking with tender affection for them. So my passage for today is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16. Please follow along with me uh, as I read. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Excuse me. I'm going to take a, I'm going to break that thought just for a second. I I need to also explain the background of this. In 1 Corinthians, Paul rebukes the church for egregious sin that happens in the church. Um, A man was sleeping with his father's wife, which was a sin that was not even mentionable among Gentiles, among non-Christians. And so he rebukes them for it. And in this passage, we see the the result of that rebuke in the life of the Corinthians. So with that as a background, let us us now read it. Continuing on in verse 3. I do not speak to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that, 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 that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you, you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything, you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be true. 
His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is a long passage, um, but I'm going to focus primarily on verses 8 to 12. Again, Paul reveals to us how the Corinthians responded to a very harsh rebuke that he gave them. And it's clear that they responded with broken, contrite spirits. My sermon today is going to have three main points. First, sorrow is a normal part of a Christian's life. We'll talk about why that is and why we, why you and I resist sorrow today. Second, not all sorrow is the same. There is good sorrow and there is bad sorrow. Paul mentions both kinds in this passage today. And we need to understand how to tell the difference between the two. How is the result of good sorrow different than the result of bad sorrow? Finally, how do you, how do you get good sorrow, good godly sorrow? And how do you avoid worldly sorrow? So first... Sorrow is a normal part of being a Christian. The first evidence of becoming a Christian is a broken and a contrite spirit before God. We read in Matthew 4 of Jesus beginning his public ministry. And what does he preach as he begins his public ministry? The first thing he says is, in Matthew 4 verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first thing that Jesus did was to call his followers to repentance. And it's still what Jesus calls us to do today. Thomas Watson, who was an old Puritan pastor, said that the first stage of repentance is humiliation. The law of God, lifted up in its perfect depiction of God's holiness and purity reveals to us our hearts that are full of sin. And the law of God breaks our hearts like a hammer breaks a rock. It shatters our pretensions and our thoughts, high thoughts of ourselves. He also says, uh, Watson also likened uh, the gospel itself, the message of Jesus Christ dying on the cross to save sinners like as a fire, that it's like a fire, that it melts our hearts when we recognize that we have abused the kindness and the patience and the loving kindness of God. <clears throat> Another story uh, demonstrating that sorrow is a normal part of the life of a Christian is Jesus once again tells a story of a religious leader. He compares a religious leader to a tax collector and how they approach God when they both go to the temple. The tax collector stands there listing all the reasons why he's better than other people and why he is more right to approach God than other people. But the tax collector, knowing that he's a sinner, stands distance away, away from others, and he's not even willing to lift his face to heaven. And he, he cries out to God and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says that that man went to his house justified rather than the, the religious leader. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I have a friend who um, I met, uh, and when I met him, he wasn't a Christian, and he's, I don't know if he's a Christian now, but he's started going to church and started uh, pursuing it, pursuing the gospel. And he, I was talking to him, and he, he said that he didn't want to take on the label of a Christian because he didn't know what that meant. He didn't understand the content of what it would mean to label himself as a Christian. Well, this is precisely one of those, one of the main things that it means. Namely, that you have a heart that is soft and supple before God. You can think of leather. If you get an old piece of leather that's dried and crusty, it's hard and it's crusty and it's all dried out, right? It's not very malleable. When you take some oil, though, and and rub it in, what happens? It gets soft and supple to the touch. That's what our heart is to be like before God. Soft. Now, today we have many different ways of of describing uh, figures of speech that we use, or another way is an idiom, idioms that we use to describe becoming a Christian. We talk about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, for instance. This, like the other ways that we have of describing becoming a Christian, are vacuous, empty, meaningless terms. When you say that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it it means almost nothing. Um, You know, I have a relationship with the guy who collects my garbage in the morning. He collects my garbage. That's my relationship with him. But I also have a relationship with my wife that's obviously much more, much deeper and much more intimate than that. To say that I have a relationship with someone doesn't get at the, the, the content of, of anything. Specifically, it doesn't get at the content of, of repentance and faith. Another idiom that we use, figure of speech, is to say that we have a life-changing experience with Jesus. Now, Many of you, I'm sure, have had very negative life-changing experiences. So to say that you've had a life-changing experience with Jesus is, is contentless. You also hear often people talking about being a follower of Jesus. Now this one is, I think, particularly insidious and crafty because, once again... It allows you to approach Jesus Christ without approaching his cross, without approaching the humiliation of the cross of Jesus Christ. So, for instance, uh, you can be a good Buddhist, and just as you follow other wise men and and, uh, lift up other wise men, you can say that you lift up Jesus, and you read his teachings, and you follow his teachings. Also... um, uh, this is also something that's used, a, a, a phrase that's used by Christians who think that they've discovered a new way to reach out to Muslims. Muslims consider Jesus, they actually consider, it's, it's explicitly said in the Quran that Jesus is the second Adam. He is the, the perfect representation of what man is supposed to be like. He's the perfect example of what we are to emulate. Well, and so it's no wonder that, a, that, a, that a, a Muslim is eager to admit to say that he's a follower of Jesus. 
Because he can do that without, without the cross, without approaching the cross and the humiliation that, that comes with that. So we have many idioms to avoid the sorrow of the cross, of, the, of, of entering Christian life. Now, if, if you enter Christian life in sorrow and in humiliation, you actually continue the Christian life constantly with sorrow also. Sorrow is a daily part of a Christian's life. To paraphrase Luther, he said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. And Calvin, also, at the beginning of the Institutes, he says, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is, That is to say, true and sound wisdom consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. So the reason our daily life is one of sorrow is because as we become a Christian, we gradually learn more and more the intricacies of our own sin, and we learn uh, more and more the holiness and the wonder of God. I can illustrate this with an example uh, from this last fall. My sister married a man uh, from San Diego, California. He's lived there for many years, and so he grew up uh, knowing how to surf. And so when I visited my sister, uh, this uh, brother-in-law of mine was teaching me how to surf. He got a he got me a surfboard that was about the size of a canoe. And, um, and it, needless to say, I did a very poor job. I could barely stand up on it. If I did it, even get my feet on the board, I fell off immediately and got a mouthful of, of uh, salt water. It was much more enjoyable to watch him. He's practiced, and he had the ability to not only stand on the board, but he had a much smaller board. And, um, and was able to do tricks, was able to, he knew how to shift his weight. He knew how to do all the things that a surfer can do because he had practiced. He'd studied it, and he knew the intricacies of it. It's, it's also like being married. When you first get married, um, particularly if you, if you aren't a Christian, uh, you kind of have this vague understanding that adultery is bad, right? And... Um, but if you become a Christian and you're married, you, you realize, yes, adultery is bad, but you realize the ways, the small ways in, in your everyday life that you, uh, that you sin against God and against His holiness. So you begin to realize that it is the job of the man to lead his home and to be the authority in his home. And you realize that it is... Uh, the privilege of the wife to submit to her husband. And you, you begin to learn how the very tone of voice that the, the wife speaks to the husband in is a way of rebelling against him. And you learn how even the way that the husband asks the question is a way that he abdicate, abdicates his authority and his leadership in the home. Finally, under um, the sorrow being a normal part of, a, of, of an everyday Christian's life, uh, those who have lost the ability to, to have sorrow 
are, are in a very dangerous place. Um, very likely, they have grown hard-hearted, and, the, and, and their hearts have grown hard, and their, their hearts are crusty and dried out. Um, there's a song that you, you may have heard. Uh, it's, it, the lyrics of it go, I'm trading my sorrows, I'm trading my pain, I'm trading my something else uh, for the, jo- the joy of the Lord, right? Now, there, there is some truth in the song. The joy of the Lord is indeed our strength. But you have to be very careful because uh, you cannot, and it is not offered to you in this life, to completely and permanently trade your sorrows. Uh, that only happens when you cross into heaven. If you cannot feel the weight of your sin in this life, then you've only become hard-hearted and calloused. Now, if we understand that that it is a normal, everyday part of being a Christian to, to experience sorrow, then how do we tell the difference between good sorrow and bad sorrow? First of all, I need to say that uh, there is a difference between godly sorrow that leads to repentance and loneliness that leads to a young man wanting a girlfriend and so coming to a college fellowship, right? In other words, there are many reasons that people can begin to appear religious on the outside that have nothing to do with repentance and faith. So, and the one that I think of, the one that that I thought of the most is the way that young college guys go to, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It could be Clearing Up Campus Fellowship. It can be Campus Crusade. They go there. Why? So that they can find a girlfriend, right? What does that have to do with repentance and faith uh, before God? It doesn't. So godly sorrow, on the other hand, has God as its focus, Okay. Repentance that leads to salvation is a result of catching a glimpse of God's holiness and purity. Isaiah, in, uh, in the book of Isaiah, catches a glimpse of God's glory, and we, we read that he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah caught a glimpse of God's glory, of God's holiness, and he recognized his poverty and his abject need before God. Worldly sorrow, on the other hand, has you as its focus. You, namely you, wanting the approval of others. So, for instance, there is the sorrow of being humiliated before others. This is a sorrow that any husband who has ever had to uh, uh, apologize to his wife or his family knows about. Why, why wouldn't a husband, uh, a man who is supposed to lead his family in godliness, not want to apologize in front of his wife and his children for harsh words, uh, for instance? Because it's, it's humiliating. And that kind of humiliation does bring sorrow to it, but it's, it's worldly sorrow. There is the sorrow of discovering that your family isn't the paradigm of, of, of virtue. Uh, in this church, there's lots of families, and it's very easy for us to compare each other, compare ourselves with each other. 
Uh, we can compare our kids with each other. And let me ask you, are you more upset that your kids are not as good as so-and-so's kids? Or are you upset that they have offended a holy God? There is the sorrow of getting caught and facing the consequences. All of us know this kind of sorrow. It's the sorrow of, uh, that you feel when the officer is walking around to your window to give you a ticket, right? You're sorry that you have to pay a fine, that you are humiliated before him, before your wife, before everyone sitting in the car. Uh, you're sorry about all that, but you're not sorry about breaking the laws of the state of Indiana, there is the sorrow of not living up to your own ideals. Um, and this, this has to do a lot, I think, with the, our different temperaments. There are some people who are hot-tempered and are more easily uh, prone to anger, speaking words of anger. And there are some people that are more even keel. And my, my wife and I um, were having a, was having a conversation yesterday, and I asked her, is it a sin to be annoyed? And I'm convinced that uh, being annoyed is the way that even kill people. <laughs> uh, be angry, right? So if I'm ever annoyed with you, I'm angry with you. Because I'm, I'm generally not going to yell at you, but I will be annoyed at you. <laughs> so it is a sin. Um, all right. Uh, the other, another example of this is, um, oh, so it's a, there's a sorrow of, of not living up to your own ideals. Well, you can feel pretty self-righteous about not, not, uh, speaking words of anger. Um, and, uh, but when you realize that, uh, even, even your annoyances are sin, you think, oh, man, but I thought I was better than that. But you're not. Um, there is also, this also comes out with men who are battling pornography on a regular basis. What, is, what are some of the reasons that men who battle pornography don't want to confess their sin and bring it out to the light? Well, they think it's, that they're better than this. They think, what, you know, I don't need to repent for this. I'm, I'm better than this. And so they... They, uh, they're sorry that they, not that they've offended God, but that they've offended their own idea of how good they are. There is also the sorrow of thinking that, you, that your sin and unbelief is beyond God's grace. This is the sorrow of fatalism. It's the kind of sorrow that you have when you are lying in bed and you can't bring yourself to get up in the morning because you know and you, you, you believe that you're simply going to do the same thing again. Again, the same thing that you did yesterday. You don't believe that there is hope for you in Christ Jesus. And so you, you wallow in your sorrow. Now, what is the fruit of godly sorrow versus the fruit of worldly sorrow? This is another way to distinguish between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And we, we read about this in our passage uh, in verses 10 and 11. What, what does he say here? He lists the sorrow that is according to the will of God. He lists what, what it results of it. It's sorrow that is without regret, right? 
you have no regrets for the sorrow for offending God and His holiness. It's sorrow that leads to salvation and comfort with God. It's sorrow that leads to earnestness and a desire uh, to, to get up in the morning. It's a sorrow to vindicate yourself and to prove that you do love God. It's a sorrow uh, that leads to indignation of your own sin. It's a sorrow that leads to longing and zeal for God, a desire to avenge the wrong that you've done. This is uh, this example um, is is demonstrated for us in the example of Peter and Judas, right? Peter, you have Peter who betrays, or uh, Peter denies Jesus Christ. And on the same day, Judas betrays Jesus. And Peter wept bitterly. Do you remember that? He wept bitterly when he, when he realized what he had done. But then you also remember that... Who was it that jumped out of the boat when he thought that Jesus was there on, on the, uh, the shore? It was Peter that jumped out of the boat, eager to get to see his master and his Lord. And what's, how is that different with Judas? Judas also wept bitterly, did he not? He wept bitterly, and rather than going to Christ in hope that he would forgive him for his sin. He took matters into his own hands. He had nowhere to go other than himself. He had no hope in the world. And so he took his life. This is also demonstrated for us in the example of Saul and David. David committed terrible sin, committed adultery. He murdered the man, murdered the, the woman's husband to cover it up. It was a man who served him and loved him, and yet he murdered him. Committed terrible sin, and yet we read that he found hope and that he turned and repented for his sin. Saul, on the other hand, did sin, and he even recognizes um, in, in, Samuel, in 1 Samuel 24, he, he, there's a story of David cutting off a slice of Saul's robe, demonstrating that he could have killed Saul. Saul had been chasing David uh, um, and trying to kill him. And David was constantly running away from Saul. And Saul, uh, so David demonstrates that he, has no, he wishes no harm for, uh, for the king. And so, um, and when, when Saul realizes that David could have killed him but does not, he weeps and he says, you are more righteous than I. But then two chapters later, he's still pursuing David and trying to kill him. Right? It's sorrow. He does have sorrow, but it's not sorrow that leads to repentance in life. So sorrow is an everyday part of every constant part of the Christian's life. There's a difference between godly sorrow that leads to repentance and faith and worldly sorrow that leads to death. Now, what steps can we take towards godly sorrow? First, we have a a good um, opportunity, today is the Lord's Supper, to examine yourself. 
are, what is the condition of your heart? Is it soft and supple before God? Are you a Christian? Have you turned from your sin and called on the Lord Jesus Christ to save you? Do you grieve over your sin at all? Second, a good uh, steps that you can take to, to, come, to move towards godly sorrow is to beware of Satan's lies and to fight against them. Satan, at this very point, is going to speak lies to you. He's going to tell you that you're hopeless and that Christ will not cover you. He, he is going to tell you that you will not grow. That He's even going to say that the sorrow that you have is an indication that you do not belong to God. And he's going to tell you that your sorrow is a sorrow of death. This is a tricky one. He's going to tell you that your sorrow is a work and that you, can't, you shouldn't do it. That you're trying too hard. Sorrow, repentance, is a gift from God. It is a mercy of God. And when we avail ourselves of it, we're not, it's not a work. It's God mercifully working in us. The lies that Satan is going to tell you are going to push you to turn in on yourself and, and not to turn to Christ. So don't be alarmed at the lies that he tells you. Don't think that something is wrong when you're in the, in the throes of this wrestling match. This is the battle of living a Christian life. And what you have to do is exactly what um, David does in, in Psalm 51. It says in Psalm 51, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Though there's a whole kingdom's worth of people that David had offended, he says that it is only God. His sin is only against God. How can he say that? He can say it because he's caught a glimpse of the glory and majesty of, of God and the holiness of God. And he recognizes that he has offended him. And we too, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, we, like David, must turn to God and reach out to Him. Finally, there is the, uh, the temptation to skip over the sorrow and immediately go to the joy that is promised to us. But this is like a man who wants to, uh, uh, is, is unwilling to be pure before he marries a woman. It's a man who wants to have relations with a woman without being married to her. He wants to jump over that step of being married. Again, Thomas Watson, to paraphrase this, this old pastor, he said, David, who was the great mourner in Israel, was the sweetest singer. 
and the joy which a true penitent finds is a foretaste of the joy of paradise. The wicked man's joy turns to sadness. That's always the way it goes. The wicked man's joy turns to sadness. The penitent's sadness turns to joy. Though repentance seems at first to be thorny and bitter, yet of this thorn a Christian gathers grapes. Christ turns the waters of tears into wine. So a Christian's life is full of sadness and sorrow, but it is also full of joy. It is the way that we, we reach the joy of the Lord. So I exhort you and I urge you, especially as we come to this table, this communion table, to not neglect the sorrow that leads to repentance and the joy of the Lord. Let's pray.